Today, we roll up our sleeves and assess the roll out of the coronavirus vaccine across the world, a sort of top of the pops for dispensing the shots, if you will. We'll also be checking in on Italy's ongoing political ructions as the nation's government teeters and ask whether UK PM Boris Johnson's overtures to Donald Trump in office may cause consternation with the incoming Biden administration. I think it might. Plus, a Friday frippery, a sonic dispatch from our oddball New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Remember him, listeners? Monocle's editors tackle these topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Do stay tuned. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24 on this fine Friday evening. I'm Josh Fennett here at Midori House in London and I'm joined at a safe distance, of course, by our editor-in-cheek, Andrew Tuck, and also a kind of man-sheep hybrid and head of radio, Tom Edwards. Um, I'll let that linger. Andrew, and start with you. Um, we'll be talking about Italian politics uh, later on, but uh, you've had your mind on the Bel Pais this week as we sent off the final proofs of the Monocle Book of Italy. Is that going to be the first place you, you head to when all this hideousness and all can these I, lockdowns can, end? Can I just say that you introduced me as the editor-in-cheek? <laughs> no, which is fine, Josh. But, but I'm just wondering what was in your mind as you introduced me as the editor-in-cheek. It must be the way you're sitting. <laughs> so when you say I've been looking the the Bel Pais, I, I wonder what, what you think that is as well, mate, because uh, I've certainly been having a look. So the editor-in-cheek, yes. I have been looking at this rather nice book that we've been sending to print, which is in our series of uh, big books about nations. We did the Big Book of Japan, and now we have the Big Book of Italy uh, coming out. And it's been a, a marvellous piece of work by uh, Chiara Ramella, uh, who is a culture editor and, of course, hails from Turin originally, and also by Joe Picard. But um, I'm, I'm still staggering with the, the view that you see me as the editor-in-cheek. <laughs> I think we need to get the business cards reprinted. And Tom, you've wandered into the office looking like a cake in the rain. Um, I gather you're taking to homeschooling and running an international radio station like a, a brick to water. How are you faring? Yeah, Josh, it's not the easiest thing I've ever done. But whilst I admit I may at times have a face like a grieving cod, my inner child, I assure you, is full of levity and ready for action on today's late edition. So let's let's get stuck in. And your outer children, they've probably been enjoying having you uh, well, in the house a bit more. I don't know. They're quite physically and mentally abusive towards me. <laughs> it's best to just draw a veil over them. I try like a parrot. If you just shroud them, maybe they're quiet. It doesn't work with mine. Interesting. I wonder what child services will have to say about that. Um, <laughs> we're going to start things off with uh, a discussion of the global coronavirus vaccine rollout. Here in the UK, things have got off to a fairly fast clip with ambitious plans to increase vaccination to 24 hours a day and hopes of dispensing half a million shots a day by next week. The government also caused a little bit of consternation by delaying second jabs for many uh, in the hopes of offering more initial shots to more people. Elsewhere in the world, there's been a mixed bag. Israel has already inoculated an impressive 20% of its population, while Japan has delayed offering any jabs until February. Indonesia is caught in controversy by focusing its rollout on the working age population. So who has the right idea? Andrew, I'll start with you. The UK's uh, vaccine rollout plan, uh, how do you assess the approach so far? Well, oddly, touch wood as it were, it's, it's going pretty well. They're up to 260, 290,000 jabs a day. And it does seem that they might get to this incredible half a million injections a day next week. 
But there's hints now that they, they, they could go even further. So they're thinking that every person over the age of 50 will have been offered a jab by the end of March, which is, is pretty amazing. And that should have a, a, an impact, obviously, on the kinds of people who end up in hospital. We know that it, all the, the most exposed groups, the, the over 80s are currently getting it, people with certain health conditions are getting it. Once you begin to take those people out of the equations, even if people catch it, they don't end up going into hospital. But what's interesting is when you look at Israel, for example, the, the, the example you gave, they had their, their worst day of infections yesterday. So even though they've done 20% of the population, as yet it hasn't brought the numbers down. Now, they're, they're, they're thinking it would anyway take some, some while. And of course, there's a 21-day period between getting the injection and building up your first round of immunity and then you need to have this second injection. So there, it, there are still some hurdles. And in Israel, I know that they're, they're reporting that many people who've had the jab, unfortunately, in the next 21 days, that they come in contact with the virus and they, they still end up in hospital. So it isn't the, the perfect quick fix. We know there was never going to be the, the so-called you know, silver bullet scenario. But it is important. And it changes the mood of the country. I think you know, that when you see those numbers, it, it gives you some hope. But the problem is for the government, because it does give you some hope, and you know that your grandparents and your parents maybe are now protected, it changes behaviour. And this is what they're desperate not to happen. They're trying to say, yeah, all these people might be okay, but don't change your behaviour. So it's going to become very tricky holding the, the, the line over rules and regulations in the coming weeks as people's mindset be- begins to alter. And Tom, things are very different in different countries. There are obviously different rates, different numbers of people willing to accept the jab and a different supply as well. But are you surprised that the numbers of vaccinations in, say, places like France have been rather low? Or do you think it's important that countries with rather sceptical populations act more slowly and more carefully as, say, Japan and France are doing with consultations and a slower rollout process? Well, I think what's striking is that you'll see similarly diverse uh, exits from the worst of the pandemic, as we saw uh, variations in the way that people kind of crashed or eased themselves into it on the way. And there are countries that will go for kind of tearing off the tearing off the, the, the plaster approach. And there'll be those who are more circumspect. And I, I think it's very difficult. I think lots of different governments, administrations, you know, the public or the press, other countries are often quick to, to heap on the sort of opprobrium when there's perceived missteps or policy mismanagement. But actually, you can see that in some, in some senses, governments owe it to their populations whom they represent to be reactive uh, to their specific requirements. You know, Britain was in it's probably the only thing I can think of where we were in a fortunate position because of the Brexit shenanigans that we were able to be much more fleet in terms of approvals and this kind of thing. So that looks like that might pay off. Um, But a country like France, which has for very complicated reasons, a much greater instance of uh, anti-vax theory and support amongst the public, um, they'll need to be a bit more carefully careful. I do find it very funny when you have countries who just put the whole thing on ice for a, a few months because if you're sitting here in the UK, it feels like it's just too important to even countenance a delay. But you realise that, again, different countries, different markets, different preoccupations, um, all of these things are, are very different. It just it demonstrates how impossible it is to have a true uh, unanimity of approach uh, to managing the worst of the crisis and even to managing uh, our way out. It will be not twin track, it'll be multiple tracks wherever we look. 
Yeah, and Andrew, just moving beyond the vaccines, but still staying on coronavirus very briefly. Um, we've seen this week that the World Health Organization's investigators, after much wrangling, have been allowed into China to investigate the origins of the virus. Are we expecting them to find very much other than kind of bleached surfaces and what used to be a food market and or much in the way, I suppose, of transparency from their hosts? Uh, no, and I don't think we should. I think we should be honest about it. It's, it's you know, they're not going in as detectives trying to pin the blame. You know, they're, they're looking to see what evidence there is for you know, how it began, maybe, but how it spread and what decisions could have been taken. There's no way that they're going to come out and write a report that points the finger at China, let alone says perhaps this was you know a breakout from a from a, a, a chemical breakout from some clinic or anything like that. That's that's just not going to happen. The Chinese won't allow that to happen, and and certainly I don't think any organisation like the WHO even wants to get into that game. So we should be wary about that. It's important that they go in, though, because we do need to understand how this how this spread, what the origins of it were. So even if the, the evidence they get is patchy and, and incomplete, these people aren't idiots either. So they will have some idea of, of, of what unfolded. And we're seeing you know, outbreaks again in China at the moment. So it's, it's an important time to be there. But let's, let's, let's not be stupid that there is going to be no revelations from this. And at the risk of upsetting our producer in Milan, I'm just going to ask Tom you one question on this topic because I think it's uh, I think it's quite interesting. The labelling of the virus with the name of where it came from or where the variant came from has been in the news a lot this week, and um, the Spanish seem uh, keen in some papers to call the latest variant in the UK the UK variant, perhaps uh, as revenge for the Spanish flu as we know it. But what are the kind of fraught politics of of naming a virus or naming a problem? with the country of origin? Well, I think, again, this it kind of ties into what I was saying earlier, which is not only that it's very difficult to manage, but people tend to, I, I think, or instinctively, almost they're, they're sort of predisposed to look without for the problem. You know, very obviously that was the Trump narrative around the disease, um, talking about, you know, the Chinese flu or the Kung flu, all these ridiculous things that he said. Um, but I think it's too easy to do that. And one of the positive things, perhaps, that the WHO investigators will bring from their whole experience is they may get an insight into the, um, the, the the nuances of how these things are managed or mismanaged or communicated or miscommunicated within China. And perhaps the key takeaway that the investigators will, will uh, be able to publish to the rest of the world, Josh, is that future outbreaks of this type, other global health crises, the solutions are never going to be just scientific or, or just uh, medical. They will be necessarily diplomatic. They'll be geopolitical in character. And that might be the, the critical learning after all. And this is a story that we're going to continue covering on Monocle 24, where you can always look for optimistic, enterprising and rigorous reporting on the subject. But for now, we're jetting off to Italy briefly for our second topic of the day. The Italian coalition government has been in trouble this week and former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi and his Italia Viva party, a minority member of the coalition, have been causing trouble. So much so that he asked his ministers to resign this week over disagreements with PM Giuseppe Conti over the way he plans to dish out the EU recovery fund money. Let's listen to our inimitable culture editor, Chiara Romella, who unpacks the crisis roiling in her homeland and did so earlier on Monocle 24. I would like to start with La Repubblica because it has a really great headline. It is in Italian, La Conta di Conte, which, as you can hear, has a bit of a ring to it. So, Contest Count... Um, 
the background to this is obviously the government crisis. So uh, PM Giuseppe Conte has been challenged by Matteo Renzi, himself a former prime minister, who now is at the head of his own party called Italia Viva. It's a party that only commands a few senators uh, that is estimated would get about 2 to 3% if there was to be an election. And yet, by withdrawing his, uh, his senators, um, he has now created a government crisis. So Conte is currently trying to see if it is possible to create a majority with senators from other parties. He's particularly looking at finding those he calls the responsibles. So the responsible senators that will perhaps, you know, betray trade their own party and move parties and support his um, his government. So he's trying to get people from, for example, Berlusconi's party, uh, Forza Italia. He's also hoping that some of Renzi's senators will go against, I guess, uh, the boss's um, new indications and perhaps support Conte's government anyway. Um, this is something, this is all these negotiations will have to go on in the next few days. And then on Monday, there will be a vote. But if Conte fails to, I guess, secure all these new senators, then there is a possibility, one of the many possibilities and scenarios that opens up then, uh, that Italy might be heading into early elections once again. Monocle's Chiara Romella there speaking on the briefing a little bit earlier. Now to our next topic. We move on to UK-US relations and specifically what to do when you've backed the wrong horse. Prime Minister Boris Johnson spent much of his premiership cozying up to Donald Trump, but as the US president leaves office, Johnson has been keen to distance himself from the twice-impeached tangerine of a man. On today's edition of The Globalist, we spoke with Lance Price, former director of communications for Number 10 under Tony Blair, about why the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has a tricky U-turn to pull off with the incoming Biden administration and where he went wrong. Where they went wrong, I think, was in uh, cozying up so much um, to uh, Donald Trump because Boris Johnson saw that as being in his political interests, uh, that they failed to develop the relationships, which is what you normally do ahead of a, a, a US presidential election. You basically make sure that you're in with both sides so that whoever wins, uh, you've got the relationships there uh, and you've got the mutual understanding there that you can you can take forward. Very belatedly, Boris Johnson has tried to catch up. Uh, so he had a call with with um, uh, Joe Biden after he was uh, became president-elect uh, and uh, uh, Boris Johnson said, it was a return to the kind of business that we're used to doing together, you know, standing up for democracy around the world, human rights and all the rest of it. But a lot of very senior Democrats simply regard Boris Johnson as an untrustworthy shapeshifter who will say whatever suits him uh, at whatever time it suits him um, and therefore is not a truly reliable, trustworthy partner going forward. Lance Price there speaking on The Globalist. Um, Andrew, um, as Lance mentioned, uh, Boris Johnson was the first European leader to get a phone call um, from Joe Biden, symbolic or otherwise. That does show a willingness to to talk. That's why you phone people, but also perhaps to do business over time. And Boris Johnson, for all of his pitfalls, can be rather charming in a way, certainly personally very affable. Um, Could this be a chance for a reset on relations with the US? Is it political expediency on Boris Johnson's part? Or as Lance says, do you think the US will be a little bit wary of Boris Johnson's willingness to say anything? It's just priorities. And it's it's just not going to be a priority. You know, we, we have a new administration starting in a country that is you know, riven by fractures, which has huge social issues to attend to. 
that has been hit so hard by the pandemic, those are the things that are going to be important. Then it's rebuilding relationships around the world. The EU is a a better and a quicker win in a way for the US. You, You make friends with more people quicker by courting the EU. He'll want to know what the EU sees as the best way forward on trade, on global trade. They will have a say in what happens going forwards. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we were told, you know, and let's not rehash all this, but we were told it would be very simple to leave the EU because the US would be desperate for a deal with us. And they had this amazing close relationship. That all feels like from a generation ago now. That, that's gone. So he is going to have to court and court hard. You know, America will want to be friends with the UK. We're a large economy. We, we, we're important in NATO. All those things are, are true. But it's, it's not going to be simple. And it, the, the, it just takes up a lot of bandwidth, all, all these trade negotiations. And they haven't got time for that at the moment. That is not going to be the top of the list. So I think you know, that while he's trying to distance himself in recent days, somehow being the first to go and see Donald Trump actually doesn't look so smart at the moment. And um, Tom, what can New York-born Boris DeFeffel Johnson do um, as a proactive way of cozying up to the new administration. If, as Lance Price says, he can shift shapes, what shape should he assume? Well, I, I think I think it's pretty tough for him. And, and to be fair, the, the democratic movement has been pretty consistent. They said, if you go right back to the Brexit vote, and certainly in the run-up to the general election in the US, the Democrats said, listen, it's kind of a moot point. Britain's moved further to the back of the of, of the queue. And I think that's exactly what what, what uh, Biden will, will stick to. I think where Andrew's exactly correct is that Biden is not going to have the time or the inclination to engage in foreign policy adventures, particularly in the first probably couple of years of his administration. And when he does, he will want to do stuff that broadcasts his enthusiasm for traditional diplomacy, for multilateralism. And exactly as Andrew identifies, the easiest way to do that is to fly not into London, but into Berlin or Paris or to Brussels even, and to sort of, you know, check off not only all of these different uh, political uh, uh, allies, but frankly, a much more significant trading bloc. Sure, the UK, big economy, but the EU, significantly larger. And I think when Biden and his cabinet discuss transatlantic trade and transatlantic multilateralism, they will be talking about the continent of Europe, not these increasingly irrelevant islands anchored off to its westernmost point. Well, that's something to think about. Um, But we thought we should leave the listeners perhaps on this Friday evening with a little bit to cheer them. Um, So we're heading off for the latest missive from our New York correspondent, Henry Rees Sheridan, who convinced us to send him to Penn Station for a report and uh, then spent the entire time talking about something else entirely. Some of it, I'm reliably informed, took place in a toilet as well. Um, (laughs) (laughs) On that note, take it away, Henry. Pennsylvania Station, uh, or Penn Station, is the busiest train station in the whole of North America. It's also one of the worst buildings uh, in the entire world. It's uh, kind of as if a vengeful deity uh, copied and pasted a neglected underpass from a fourth-tier provincial British city for dozens and dozens of miles to make a diabolical subterranean warren. Uh, But it wasn't always this way. The original Penn Station was a marvel of architecture and engineering that rivalled Grand Central's famous terminal in its grandeur. But it was torn down in the 1960s, a period considered a dark age 
for urban planning in New York. But now the city might be getting some of the magic of the old Penn Station back, because on January 1st, the Moynihan Train Hall opened, which is an extension to the station, and everyone is raving about it. I thought about writing a review of the train hall, but then I remembered that I don't know anything really about architecture. Uh, but I do know a man, a man called Ross, uh, a man called Ross who is from New York. Ross agreed to let me let me tape his first impressions of the Moynihan train hall at Penn Station in New York. If it's the first time you've been inside. First time I've come inside. I've what been looking forward to this for, for years. Yeah, I, I just feel I feel like there's a chance for infrastructure and rail travel and public transit and public spaces. You know, you feel like there actually is a chance. It's beautiful, but it's functional. It doesn't feel ridiculous like that scaly Port Authority building down near Ground Zero, which was... Uh, you know, cost a ton of money and was was the Calatrava building. Um, it just feels, yeah, it, it's nostalgic and forward-looking at the same time. I mean, it's, the first impression is wonderful. The fonts, I feel like somebody studied the fonts over in London and, and uh, kind of brought them over here, the, the signage, the lighting. It's actually, it's comforting, you know. You want to go somewhere, but somehow you're not, you're not in a hurry. It's a little bit... Hushed. The acoustics seem seem very nice. Feels very good. Daniel Patrick Moynihan is, I think, just a major, yeah, a major figure of 20th century American liberalism, who also, I guess, had this tremendous kind of care for and interest in issues of design and architecture, which is so unusual in a in a politician. But I think Moynihan actually grew up in like Hell's Kitchen, so very close to here. Kind of real Irish working class. I think had one of these great stories. Worked as like a longshoreman. You know, he had sort of seen it all in terms of New York City in the 20th century, and um, just had this amazing career uh, across the second half of the 20th century. Um, there's a wonderful documentary about him. There's, I know, a very good recent biography, relatively recent biography. But he had this career where, you know, he wrote the, co-authored the, what, the famous Moynihan Report. So he was a famous kind of like thinker who actually also, you know, was a real intellectual thinking about, you know, philosophical issues and the trajectory of the country, political philosophy. He was this very just courageous, well-spoken uh, ambassador to the UN as well for the US at one point. Um, but then probably his kind of longest standing thing, I don't know, it was a couple of decades. I, I mean, I still remember, I'm, you know, my late 30s, but when I was, I guess, like a kid, teenager, he was the senior senator from New York. He was the senator from New York for like 20, 30 years. And he was, he was that person on the floor of the Senate who, I mean, I don't know, today, maybe people feel, I don't know, that there's somebody there, Mitt Romney or somebody relatively, but... You know, he was a very liberal Democrat, but he incredibly eloquent. He was there kind of as a one of the great, like, statesmen, you know, as, as these Burke and Fox and Henry Clay and these kinds of, these kinds of statesmen. Um, and this was, one of his, this was one of his great visions, and it's a great homage. Railroad will go from Grand Central, so we're in the bogs. Um, the listener will no doubt hear that from the acoustics. Yeah, special bathroom acoustics. Pretty sweet Toto urinals. Monocle's uh, <laughs> listeners will be uh, chuffed about that, I'm sure. 
This is pretty swank, mate, for a public restroom in the yeah. United States of America. This is, this, right now, this, right now, this is probably gonna be the best. Public restroom in America. Public restroom in America, I wouldn't be surprised. Wow. I haven't even sort of tried to focus on the public art yet, but I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of public art here. Stained glass windows there's a, there's a kind of upside down New York mobile on the roof. It's really nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, like stalactite or is it stalagmite? Yeah, I down. think it's uh, stalactite, right? Tight is hanging down, mite is. Yeah, I remember up. from like junior school geography, one of the only things I remember is that uh, stalagmites grow up with all their might. Stalactites ah. hold on tight because they're coming so down from the roof. Up. Oh, that's wow. That was actually the last thing that Ross said to me. As you can hear, he was literally wowed into silence by my uh, grasp of the distinction between uh, stalagmites and stalactites. Uh, so he walked away without uttering another word. I can't say I blame him. Uh, I had discovered a chink in his armour of omniscience and he could no longer afford to make himself vulnerable to me. I watched his head disappear beneath the surface of the station. He entered the, the bowels of the other bad part of Penn Station. Uh, and then I, I walked outside onto the broad concourse uh, of the station which faces Madison Square Garden. And I spent a little while taking in uh, a digital billboard attached to Madison Square Garden which was displaying the image of, of a septuagenarian Pete Townsend rocking out on a, a cherry red Stratocaster. Uh, and then I went home. Uh, that was Henry Reese Sheridan there. And if for some reason you enjoyed that, then you can, of course, revisit our past <laughs> few Friday editions and hear more of his rambling reminiscences and a fair few odd occurrences that have befallen him. But sadly, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you to our editor-in-chief, or chief, uh, depends on how you pronounce it. I think it's a regional thing, Andrew Tuck, and also head of Radio Tom Edwards here in London. And to all of our editors today, I'm feeling magnanimous, and our studio managers, Louis Allen and Sam Impey, not to mention our faithful producer Ed Stocker from Milan. I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great weekend and goodbye.